It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing on the day after Thanksgiving. So you're probably all feeling a bit lethargic after eating all that food, or maybe you haven't, because this was a very strange year. A lot of people celebrated this quietly or um, just as a, a family or a couple. Some people, some people celebrated it alone. Um, But it's a wonderful holiday because it gives us a chance to focus on gratitude. And um, I think that's a very important aspect of being happy in our lives. Premonitions of death, near-death experiences, and afterlife communication are common experiences, but they can be difficult to talk about and understand. Today's special guest, Ken Zoko, Ph.D., a world-renowned expert on death, dying, and bereavement, explores dozens of case studies and fascinating research on the usual phenomena related to the dying process and helps you to come to your own understanding of what these experiences mean. In his book, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End, he shares stories of death coincidences, terminal lucidity, ghosts, reincarnation, and more. Dr. Dawson's examination of extraordinary experiences provides meaningful answers and wisdom. With a deep sense of empathy and compassion, this book's insights support you as you integrate these phenomena and cope with the emotions that come along with them. Ken J. Daka, I'm We'll get that straight in a minute. PhD (laughs) has edited or written over 35 acclaimed academic books on death-related subjects, as well as the trade title, Grief is a Journey. A senior consultant for the Hospice Foundation of America, he gives approximately 30 keynote speeches a year. That's a lot. Um, He is also president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling, and the International Workgroup on Death, Dying, and Bereavement. He was a professor of counseling at the College of New Rochelle. And for more information, you can visit drkendoka.com. Oh, let's get started. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. I have to make one correction. I was president um, of both uh, the International Work Group and, and the Association for Death Education and Counseling, but I'm not presently their presidents. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up. Okay. Now, pronounce your last name for us. Doka, D-O-K-A. Doka. Perfect. Okay. Uh, but just call uh, me Ken. Have... Just call you Ken. <laughs> well, that makes it easier. Okay. All right. Well, this is, as um, as I told you, this is a topic that I am, I love to discuss. I am very much into metaphysicals and um, paranormal, and uh, the death and dying topic is something I've been really reading about for many, many years, and I find it super fascinating. 
you, this wasn't always your life's work. How did you get into doing this? Well, I, I've been involved in the field of, of, of counseling with the dying and bereaved um, for um, almost 50 years now. Um, I like to say I started at five, but I actually started at 70, at, at 23. But, um, but it, it was interesting um, because this had not been an area of, of interest. But, you know, over time, as you work with the dying and bereaved uh, and you work with the medical staff, you kept hearing these stories on and on again. Um, you know, every family has, has their own story that, that somehow fits into this. And um, and so a number of years ago, uh, there's a, a group called the Afterlife Conference that's headed by Terry Daniel, and they called me up and they asked me to do a keynote address there, and I, I really sort of tried to discourage them. I said, you know, this is not really my area, and it's, um, you know, and, and I said, um, you know, that I'm, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm your right person, but, but Terry was pretty insistent, and and I said, okay, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk about what the, the research has to say, and I'm going to lay it out to them, and, um, you know, and people could form their own opinions. And, um, and when I did that, I was surprised at how receptive people were, and it also made me very aware, you know, that, um, that I'm a Lutheran clergyman, I'm a, um, you know, a sociologist, a, a scientist by, by nature, and none of these fit easily into either my theology or my scientific orientation, but, you know, but they've been around, these experiences have been recounted time and time again when you work with the grieving, and they've been, you know, noted throughout history um, and, and across cultures. So it's hard to ignore and say this is just the, you know, the, the wanton wishes of people who, who um, you know, uh, want to hold on to the person. It clearly seems to be more than that. Yeah, um... Is it Dr. Raymond Moody that uh, did extensive research onto near-death experiences and um, and the commonalities between them? Yes, yes, and there's been other research as well by Alan Kelleher and by Kenneth Ring, um, and you know, and and again, um, we find that those experiences are a little bit more diverse now than Dr. Moody, uh, Raymond Moody, originally noted. You know, people have uh, and they're influenced by culture. So we we look at a tunnel in um, in in the South Pacific. Um, people will often talk about taking a canoe and into this sort of foggy area, and then being drawn back. Um, so you know, so mm-hmm. cultures have these experiences, uh, and in different cultures, um, the imagery may be different, but the the meaning is pretty much the same. Okay, well that's really um, that's fascinating. That is really fascinating. What um, what is a nearing death awareness? What happens uh, with that? that? That's very very interesting, and and um, and that was originally done by Callanan and Kelly, uh, two nurse practitioners. And what it really refers to, and I think many people have experienced this, and we've experienced it in my own family as well, is that often people who are who are dying will communicate the awareness that death is near. Um, and they'll often do that in, a, in, in some characteristic ways. Um, all of a sudden, you might have a, a, a sick father or a sick mother who all of a sudden starts talking about the fact that, um, that they have to catch a plane or they have to travel, um, that they're going on a trip. And you're thinking, you know, I, I can't even get you to the bathroom by yourself. 
you know, what kind of trip are you thinking you're going on? Or another way that they'll communicate it is that they'll communicate it uh, by saying, you know, I, I, I just spoke to Grandma last night. And you're thinking, well, Grandma's been dead for 22 years. Um, and the third experience, which is the experience that we had, um, is one day my father was in hospice care. And one day, matter of fact, ironically, it, it, it was this week, it was the weekend after Thanksgiving um, um, a number of years ago. Uh, so I think about this often at this time. And one day he announced, he asked the question, am, am I dying? Now, he wasn't asking the question, do I have a terminal disease? Do I have cancer? And am I in hospice care? And, you know, he knew all that. Um, but it seemed to me much more imminent. And um, so my mother called me up and I, I spoke to my father and I said, are, you know, are are you okay? And he said, you know, are you in pain? Are you feeling? He said, I just feel different. I just feel that I'm dying. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, his three kids, uh, my brother and sister and I, we all went to his bedside. We sat around him with his mother, uh, with, with, with my mother, his, his wife. Um, and about 10 o'clock that night, he said, I'm feeling better. Um, and why don't you all go to your rooms? And, um, and he died that night. And I think my it's sister so was always upset. My sister was always upset that we didn't stay, um, but I think he needed us there, but not at the moment that he passed. Yeah, and I hear that um, quite often, where people will be at the bedside of their loved one days and days and weeks and months, and they get up to get coffee, and that's when the person passes. Because, from what I understand, we can almost entirely but once we're in that state we can almost time our death have you found well, that to be true there's some fascinating stuff by um by philip pine years and years ago um which talks about the fact that you know like he he researched for instance um uh, the, the deaths of of, high, uh, of, of the Orthodox uh, Jewish community. And one of the things that he found was there was a dip in deaths uh, before Yom Kippur. And then after Yom Kippur, um, the death rate rose. So it was like people are holding on for this most holy of days um, and then, you know, and, and then uh, letting go. And, you know, and I think every family has stories of uh, – that you know somebody waiting till their kid got home from college, or waiting till uh, their brother or sister arrived um, before they died. So I, I think you know, in some strange way, I think you're right. We we may have um, not control over the process of dying, but control over the, some control over the timing of dying. And I think every family has anecdotes uh, uh, that really speak to that. Yeah, it's interesting that you said um, about. The Jewish phenomena about the high holy days because I have a Jewish background and I lost three grandparents at different times all during that period of time. So after the the holidays, absolutely. Yep, right after. So uh, I can back that up. Yeah, and Uh, and there's certainly research. It's it's strange research, too, that we we are more likely to die – um, three months after a birthday than we are three months before a birthday. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going to hit that 78. I'm going to hit that 90. And then after that, you know, we've, we've hit that spot. So there's that, that same dip you found in the Orthodox. You also find uh, many people in terms of their birthdays as, as a, you know, they, they want to make that milestone. 
It's so true. I used to be a hospice volunteer. I did it for five years. Um, so I was with always sitting by the death, the, the dying, actually. Sure. And and I had, you know, certain um, certain experiences. One in particular, though, really stands out to me. This really kind of stuck with me. I had been seeing this man at his home, and he didn't seem to be doing that bad. He was walking on his own. He was eating. You know, he just didn't seem to be in, uh, you know, near death. And I got a call from his live-in, the woman who lived with him, his girlfriend, so to speak. And she said, you can't come today because he's having hallucinations. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, what are the hallucinations? And she said, well, he keeps seeing these white things floating down from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And he's, he says it's the church ladies that are coming to get him. And he's paranoid. It's, make, it's scaring him. It's scaring him. She's like, and we just put him on a different medita- medication, so we're going to call the doctor and find out why he is having these hallucinations. Well, the next call I got from her is, you don't have to come anymore. He passed. So mm-hmm. um, obviously it was angels coming down from the ceiling. He was being visited by angels, and he was and, a Catholic. He practiced Catholicism. Yeah, and, and people will, you know, and as I said, it, it's remarkable how many people will recount stories such as that. Uh, I remember one little girl who was dying in 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 uh, of cancer, and uh, and right before she died, she sort of perked up, and she said, "Oh, it's it's so beautiful," and. Um, and the mother said, what, what's so beautiful? And she said, the angel. Um, and then soon after that, she died. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wasn't it, um, was it Steve Jobs that uh, she, did something very very similar? He sat up at the very end and said, oh, wow. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and then he went, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, the, uh, yeah, the other thing is um, that, our experience tends to reflect our belief here in the physical world, especially when it comes to um, religious figures. So we tend to see what we believe in. Can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah, uh, and and that goes back to some of the early research on the like the the near death experiences that people have that we talked about. Where um, and just to clarify, the near death experiences for those of of your listeners who might not uh, might be a little bit confused about what's what um, are the experiences where somebody's revived and they talk about uh, they were you know they they seem close to death. Their heart might have stopped. They might have been in a terrible accident, uh, and they're at the edge of life, and then they they seem to revive and come back and they often report these kinds of experiences. And, you know, and, and again, um, some of the research that was done would say, well, like um, many people, um, particularly Catholics, will talk about meeting somebody like the Virgin Mary, where Protestants almost never do. <laughs> you know, so you do see that, um, that, that the figures seem to reflect uh, their beliefs, their culture, um, wh- whatever is you know, what their faith, their faith system, whatever going on. But sometimes it's it's it, it's it's not. Um, I, I, one of the stories I recount in the book was a fascinating story of a woman who was um, who was dying, and re- uh, and and again um, she recounted kind of like this this premonition uh, of of death. 
But but what was interesting is she was a non-believer. She believed very firmly when you died, that's it. You know, uh, you go into the ground, you you live in memory, but that's that's the end of it. And um, and and she recounted um, having this dream where she's walking in this beautiful gardener garden, and as she uh, she meets the gardener and and he says, you know, I I really need help and. Um, and I'm I'm glad you're coming soon to help me. Um, and uh, and you know, and he showed her around this this beautiful. And she loved to garden, so this was, you know, a very comforting, peaceful image to her. Um, and uh, you know, to me, it'd be a nightmare. I think, oh my gosh, I have to work. <laughs> I have chores to do when I get to heaven. <laughs> but for her, it was a very comforting image. And you know, and, and her closing words to me really were, um, you know, I. I I never believed there was anything, um, anything else. Um, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. And sometimes, um, <clears throat> I've had uh, a few guests on that in the 45 seconds or whatever that they died and then were revived, they downloaded incredible amounts of information from the spirit world. All kinds yeah, yeah. of truth about life that uh, they could not possibly have known. Yeah, and and you know, and and the research does now again. You know, um, we talk about the positive experiences, and most experiences are positive, but some have have you know have negative experience. But for those who have a positive experience, we see some real changes, um, particularly in terms of death anxiety. Their anxiety about death really almost disappears. Really goes down. After well, these I mean, with death, you know, with death being the the number one fear that we have, uh, when we know we don't die, what's there to fear, sure. really? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you know, but but also one of the things I, I we might want to say is that you know, again, um, some of the some people who don't seem to have positive near death experiences. One of the ones that I talk about is a, a young man who overdosed. Um, and he had this terrible image of uh, of falling into an abyss, and these gargoyle-like um, creatures would come out and say, "Oh, you've gone too far. You've gone too far this time." So his, you know, near-death experiences were, was very terrifying. Have you heard others of other experiences like that? Yeah, you know, they exist, um, but they're certainly a minority. And it'd be interesting to try to see what are the, um, uh, you know, what are the factors that seem. Now, I mean, this person, it was obvious he was doing something he shouldn't be doing. You know, he was he was rel- he was only about sixteen at the time. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I never followed. I don't know if it scared him straight or not, um, as as to what his future was when he left the left the the hospital. But. Um, but it certainly was a scary experience for him, and it'd be interesting to see what factors might might exist for those, you know, that that small group of people who don't have positive experiences. And there's also stories about um, where people get messages that, uh, like, somebody will call and say, "Oh, I I just heard from Grandma or something like that," um, from the other side, and the person will say, "Well, she's not dead," you know. And then they and come then, to find out at that at that very time she passed. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, as I said, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff um, that comes, comes out in, in all kinds of different, um, in different dimensions, in different pieces. And you say in your book um, that some cultures, <clears throat> in some cultures, there are few reports of near-death experiences uh, because, say, say, in the African tribes, dead and dying are to be feared. Uh, and so near-death experiences were found to be rare, as they were among all the Australian Aborigines. So um, Shishan concludes that near-death experiences were more common in cultures that had beliefs in souls and an afterlife. Yeah, I, and that's probably the case. I mean, I, Sushan does some really, really good stuff on this. So, I, you know, I, I tend to trust his work. And, and again, you know, and it's just it, it's simple. If you're, if you're trained, if, you're, if your mind doesn't think in terms of, 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 of soul or eternity or some kind of afterlife, whether you believe it or not, you're still in a society that believes it. So, you know, it becomes it becomes buried in there or, or disbelieved, but it's still part of your, you know, your cultural heritage where in, in other cultures, that's simply not the case. So it, it may, you know, it, 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 what I think happens is when these experiences happen, you, you don't acknowledge them. You don't recognize them. You, you know, you just kind of say, Oh, that was weird, you know, and, and move on. With all the trials if it, if you and studies, describe it in your language, in your culture. You know, there's um, it, it gets lost. That's just amazing, very, very fascinating. <clears throat> um, the, the 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 what was I going to say? Um, I completely forgot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I get this information and I just it just goes as fast as I get it if I don't write it down. Okay. Um, so, but most people, oh, I know what I was going to say. So there sort of is scientific evidence of this happening because of so many um, near-death experience document, you know, documentation and um, especially with children. Yeah. Would you say there is scientific evidence of this, that there absolutely is proof of this? Well, I'd, I'd put it a little bit differently, but I'd, I'd basically agree. I, the way I would put it is, um, you know, there is no doubt that people have these kinds of experiences. That's that's indisputable. Um, you know, they have these experiences in different cultures. They, you know, you can look at old accounts of these experiences, and 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 they, you know, and, and you can find them, you know, in, in in historical memoirs and things like that. I mean, you know, that these experiences happen is undeniable. Uh, what what they mean or how to interpret them certainly, you know, um, certainly is open to discussion. But but that these experiences are common and and they occur, um, you know that's indisputable. Hmm. So, you know, it it can't be, in my opinion, <clears throat> it can't be the brain changing or um, you know a process that's that happening and, yeah. in, in the death because people report seeing their their dead loved one, you know, people who have crossed over. 
And yeah. why would that happen? Uh, there's just no reason why that happened. And I'm sure there's other things that can um, dispute the theory of, you know, being some kind of, um, you know, chemical reaction in the brain or something like that. Oh, yeah, there's there's millions of different uh, theories. But, um, you know, as I said, over the years, uh, 50 years in the field made me a believer. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> I'll bet. I'll bet they did. So, um, so we talked about near-death experiences. Let's talk about um, people who um, you talk about in Chapter Four, coincidentally death. Yeah. Um, and you start with, the- with yeah with Abraham President Abraham Lincoln. Can you tell us that story? Well, there's there's a couple of stories. I, I the story that I think is the most amazing one is um is Robert Todd Lincoln, his son. And and it's interesting that, you know, Robert Todd Lincoln of course had the famous name. He um later became a businessman. He served in various presidential commissions and, and cabinets. But what was interesting about about Robert Todd Lincoln well two things, two stories that really struck out to me is that he was present at all three uh, presidential assassinations of the 19th century um, and early 20th century. He was there when his father was shot. You know, he came to, uh, came to the theater when his father was shot. Uh, he, um, he was there to greet Garfield when Garfield was shot. Uh, and he was there when McKinley was shot. Um, Teddy Roosevelt invited him to a function, and he declined saying, bad things happen to presidents when I'm present. Um, but then the other interesting thing about Robert Todd Lincoln is his own experience. Um, you know, he was a young college student, and um, and all of a sudden, as he was um, uh, getting on a train, you know, this is in the I guess 1850s, uh, the crowd surges forward, and he's um, almost thrown in front of the train, and and a hand pulls him back. Uh, do you remember who that hand was? No. It was Edwin Booth. The, the famous actor, um, and of course the brother of another well-known actor, not as famous as, Ed, as, his, as his brother, John Wilkes Booth, who of course would later assassinate his father. Well, yeah, I recognize the name Booth, but I, yeah, the, name, the, the first name was different. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but it was Edwin's, it was John Wilkes Booth's brother, and uh, when Edwin found out later through mutual friends. Uh, who he saved, it, he later said, because he was very pro-union and, and a supporter of Lincoln. Uh, you know, his brother was sort of the odd duck in the family. Um, you know, it gave him some comfort um, that, well, uh, that he had saved the son uh, of the man who would eventually be killed by his brother. That is just bizarre. So bizarre. It? Uh, you know, it can't be. Uh, come on. It's, <laughs> that's too uh, <laughs> incredible to be, a, to be a coincidence. Those kind yeah, of things yeah. just don't just, happen coincidentally. Just, yeah. Um, it, it, it's just, uh, as I said, you know, just looking at some of those events in, in, in that book was, uh, in that chapter, was, was one of my favorite chapters to write because it, it really is such strange things. And, um, and if I were Teddy Roosevelt, I'd probably be thankful that he, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he didn't come. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah, you talk about, you have a chapter that says Stranger Than Fiction. Um, and you talk about Edgar Allan Poe and the Titanic. Um, what story, do you have a story to tell us 
there? Oh, well, it, it, it's fascinating that, um, and I you know, don't have the details right in my head right now, but one of the things that really is fascinating about the Titanic is that um, a number of stories were written um, that, um, that seemed to, um, and written before the Titanic sunk, that, um, that seemed to, uh, you know, again, almost coincidentally, um, uh, mimic what actually happened to the Titanic. And um, one book, uh, in, in, in one book, and I forget the author of that one, uh, he tells the story of a shipwreck on a ship called the, the Titan, which slams into an iceberg, you know, which is, um, uh, you know, so again, you know, all these kinds of, of strange events um, almost were seemed like uh, preordained or were cert- people wrote about them uh, in stories uh, before they happened with some yeah, very eerie I- coincidences. Yeah, I mean, people have written about this pandemic like decades ago. Sure, I remember. Um, yeah, I remember Frank Slaughter's book. Uh, I can't think. Of, it might have been called Epidemic. But I remember reading that in high school <laughs> about a strange it, disease it, that moves over the world. Wow, and yeah, we thought it was so fictional. <laughs> Yeah, who, would, yeah. who would have, yeah, who would have believed that? What about um, a lot of time? Spouses will die within months of each other. What are your experiences with that? I'm sorry. Would you repeat the question? Sure. Sometimes spouses will die within oh. months of each other. What are your experiences yeah. with that? Well, that's that's well well documented. We, you know, uh, Colin Murray Parks, who's sort of like the grandfather of grief studies, um, called it the broken heart syndrome. And 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 again, it's this is well well researched that your your, you know, among older spouses, your chance of dying within a year of your spouse's death is um, a, a relatively high. Um, and there are reasons for that. You know, uh, one is. Um, that you know, many diseases that kill us now are, life, are diseases of lifestyle. So if you're, um, if you know, whatever diet your spouse is eating that's maybe contributing to his ill health, uh, you're probably eating it too. You know, um, the the second thing is, of course, that um, that grief is stressful, and when you're older, uh, uh, you're less able, your body's less able to sustain stress. And the third is that sometimes um, our life patterns change. You know, maybe you and your spouse went out for a walk every night together, and now now you don't do that. You're not getting the same exercise. Or, uh, you know, maybe when your spouse was alive, um, you made three nutritious meals a day, but now that he's dead, you know, whenever you're hungry, you just open up a can. Um, you know, so there are all those factors, but that's that's well documented and um, and and that actually I think well understood. Well, you certainly explained it. I mean, that all makes sense. It all makes sense. What is um, terminal lucidity? Oh, terminal lucidity is is, is probably one of the most fascinating things, and um, uh, and and what that refers to. Well, let me tell you the origin. The first case ever was a woman by the name of Katie Elmer. Uh, Katie Elmer was in, in a hospital in Germany, uh, first recorded event uh, of, of this in a, in a medical journal. And Katie was, um, 
was was um, severely uh, had severe intellectual disabilities, what we used to call um, severely mentally retarded. But she had these severe intellectual disabilities. She never even spoke. And then one day, um, she sat up uh, and she sung uh, an old hymn uh, of uh, that really forecast her own death, and then died soon after that. This is a woman who had never spoken, was uh, was badly immobile, and and all of a sudden she literally sang her death song, and then died. <laughs> and and you know when you talk about people, you'll, you will often hear people say, "Yeah, my, um, you know, uh, my mother was comatose um, for two weeks, and then all of a sudden one day she perked up, and she was talking with us and joking with us." And we thought, oh, maybe she's getting better. Maybe she's not going to die. And then, you know, the next day the hospital calls and say she, says she died. You know, the, the Katie Elmer case had one interesting thing, really. Um, it really um, – she had a physician and a chaplain uh, who was head of this mental institution in Germany. And they were so impressed by that case that they actually um, opposed Hitler's euthanasia program for the mentally disabled. And his statement was, remember the Germans had a statement, Hitler used a statement that said, um, you know, these people, their life's not worth living. And he said, Katie Elmer taught me that every life is worth living. Mm. What a wonderful story. Well, yeah, it had a powerful um, people who experienced yeah. it. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and it's interesting I, when I when I when I talk to hospice audiences about this kind of thing, and and I say, how many of you have ever seen this patient revive? You know, uh, maybe from a coma, maybe from dementia, uh, maybe from um, intellectual disabilities, and it's rare that. Um, when I ask them, you know, especially people who worked in hospice for more than five years, um, that no, that it, it's rare that a hand isn't raised. And when you when you speak to these audiences, are they professionals in the field, or are they people who have experienced um, hospice with loved one, loved ones? Um, the answer is both. I've I've spoken to professional audiences about this kind of thing, um, and and then I've also you know with the afterlife conference, the few times I've spoken to the afterlife conference, that's a mixed group of professionals and families and people just with an interest in it. Um, you know, so uh, so that's a, a group that ha- is probably more lay than professional, more you know, more just the general public. But certainly, um, it's been well. Re- you know, if you've worked in this field, you, you've you've dealt with this stuff, you've experienced this stuff. Um, you know, I would guarantee you, if you're a grief counselor or if you're a hospice nurse for more than five years, you you've come across some of this stuff. Yes, I I would have to agree with you. Uh, we also we hear a lot about um, people from the other side sending messages to loved ones through birds and butterflies and other objects, dropping pennies or, or things like that is so hard to understand, but there's a lot we don't understand, right? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that one because um, this goes back to what's what's been called, you know, earlier after death communication. Um, we now use the term um, extraordinary experiences. 
um, I don't like to use that term extraordinary experiences um, simply because they're not that extraordinary. Research has shown that um, about 60% of people who have suffered uh, a, a loss will have one or more of these experiences. And, you know, just to, to talk about it in a couple of different ways, um, um, my, I had my first case of this when I was, when I was a young counselor, about 27 years old. Um, and, um, you know, just out in the field, fresh, you know, um, um, and, and it was interesting that I had a woman and I, a woman was coming to me, her daughter died at about age three of sudden infant death syndrome, which is late for that to happen, but, but still within the range. Um, and, um, and her issue with this daughter was, um, you know, she was grieving the daughter, but her big issue was she was newly married. She said, you know, this was her first child. And at that point in time, her only child and, and her her presenting issue was, she said, you know, I, I never can go through this again. And, you know, I've always envisioned myself with a family with having, you know, a number of children. And, um, you know, but nobody can tell me it won't happen again. And um, and so I'm torn. You know, I want to have other children, but I don't want to go through this experience again. And that's what we were struggling with in counseling. And one day she came to me and she said, I had the most incredible experience. Now, remember, I'm 27. I've never dealt with this before. You know, this this particular issue that she raises. And she says, um, what happened, she says, is when my daughter was alive, um, you know, nights that we went out and she didn't go out the night that the daughter had died. She said, I put on my perfume and my daughter would beg me to put some perfume on you know the same perfume on her so she'd you know dab put a dab on behind each ear and then the little daughter was like two and a half three years old would make sure everybody see uh, smelled how nice she was and she smelled just like mommy you know so it was a cute mother-daughter moment and when the daughter died the last thing the, the mother did is she anointed her with that perfume um and then put the bottle uh in the casket and you know because again she she switched switched brands because um it, it was too associated with the daughter you know what i mean um she didn't right. want to deal with uh with all those memories and before she came to me she came up to me and said i had the most incredible experience when i went into my daughter's room um said i smelled the smell of perfume um all over the room uh and my and i called my husband in and he <laughs> And we haven't had this perfume, you know, we haven't had this perfume in the house for eight months. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I'm 27 years old. I've never heard, you know, I'm thinking hallucination, you know, losing track of reality. But she, she seemed, you know, she seemed fine. And so I think I asked the right question, um, you know, but, but that was just pure luck, not skill. Um, I said, what, what did this experience mean to you? And she said, it was my daughter telling me she was okay. And soon after that, she terminated therapy. And, um, and, and then she sent me a birth announcement for her first child, who was a boy. Um, later, um, she every once in a while would send me an email. She ended up having three children. Um, and she actually sent me a note when the first one finished college. Uh, her first boy finished college. So I thought that was lovely. Um, but, you know, but that was an experience that just I, I couldn't explain it. And then... I went to a conference of the, a number of years later. 
I went to a conference of the Association for Death Education and Counseling, and a woman uh, by the name of Bonnie Lindstrom uh, did some research on this, and she presented, you know, a paper on these kinds of experiences. And I went out with a with a few good friends uh, for a drink after the presentation, and um, and it was interesting because we, you know, we're all well-published, and we all started talking about these experiences. And then, you know, somebody said, well, why didn't we write about it, you know? And the answer was um, we were sort of fearful. You know, we wanted to say, uh, you know, Doki used to do some good work, and then he got this really strange stuff, you know? Um, but uh, but it turned out not to be so strange, and other people have done research on it. And, you know, and again, for some people, it's those symbols, the butterfly, uh, you know, something that happens right at the right moment, Um Lou Legrand, who did uh, did some of the really interesting research and actually moved uh, from northern New York by the Canadian border right down to your area, uh, I think in Hollywood, um, Lou Legrand, um, his first experience led him to do research on this. And this was a woman whose son had uh, had died, and she was you know going for counseling with Lou because her son had died. And she came in very excited, and she said, you know, Dr. Legrand, she said, every time I go to your office, I pass my son's cemetery, so I always stop there, uh, on, on, you know, either on the way there or on the way back. And she said, I stopped there on the way this morning. And she said, when I got there and I got to his stone, there was a hawk uh, perched on his memorial stone. And... Um, and he said, she said she, he didn't run away right away. He didn't fly away. He kind of cocked his head, looked at me, and then slowly flew off. And Lou Legrand said to her, and that's, you know, that's, uh, that's significant to you? And she said, my son's nickname was Hawk. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> Love that and, story. And, yeah, and then other people have experiences. So some of the people have symbolic experiences, or maybe they they mention the name and the doorbell rings, but there's nobody there. You know, um, these kinds of experiences, or the phone will ring right at that time. Um, and um, so there are the symbolic experiences, and then other people will have a, a sense of presence. Um, you know that was that was one of my powerful experiences uh you know it's not a, a just sensing the person's presence and what had happened and I tell that story in the in the book as well um is a number of years ago um I had a friend who died um I was godfather to his son his son um was he died the, literally the day before his son's fourth birthday um and he asked me, you know, he asked me, reminded me that I was godfather and, you know, would I take care of his son and, and look out for him, you know, and, and I, I did so. And we used to take him on family vacations with us and we were in the Bahamas and the kid was having the time of his life with my son and, and stuff. And, um, and one night I just decided to walk on the boardwalk and as, uh, you know, uh, at this resort uh, just to walk on the beach, just, um, and as I walked on the beach, I felt this tremendous feeling. The only way I could describe it is I felt every cell in my body was being individually hugged. <laughs> it was that powerful. And and yet there was a sadness to it. I felt it was my friend thanking me, but I also felt he was saying, um, I, I, I have to go now. And I never had that, you know, And I, where I occasionally would have experiences where I felt his presence not as strongly as I ever did that day. But I never had it again after that. I felt it was almost a valedictory kind of experience. You know, you're keeping your promise. It's been four years. I have to go. 
Other people will have sense experiences like that woman who, you know, who smelled. Um, other people will have, um, will have, uh, you know, dreams. Um, and, and those dreams can be, you know, sometimes these sort of vague, very symbolic dreams where um, one of my classic examples of that is, is a woman who told me the story that her, um, uh, her mother died very suddenly, and she, and, and she had this dream, re- repetitive dream, where she was riding in an airplane with her mother, and the mother went out to you know to use the facilities to use the the, the bathroom, and uh, and then the, the 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 pilot got on and said, well, you know, we're approaching a landing, and everyone please return to the seat, and the um, the this woman in her dream called the flight attendant over and said, would you check on my mom? Um, you know, she's in the restroom, and, you know, I, I don't know if she heard that announcement kind of thing. And the woman, the flight attendant comes back and says to her, there's nobody in any of the restrooms. <laughs> and uh, and was interesting, when I asked her, you know, one of the techniques I sometimes use in dream work is I ask somebody to label the, the dream, you know, the dream. And as soon as she labeled it, she understood it. She said, uh, she labeled it vanished into thin air. Um, and that was the experience of her mother's death. She was well one day. Uh, she got a you know call. Everything's going well. And the next day, and that night, she had a massive stroke and died in her bed. Wow, unbelievable! And then I had the a other really kind interesting. Of, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say the other really kind of. Uh-huh. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. The um, I had a really interesting experience one time. I mean, this talk about bizarre. So, I had gone to see the channel um, James Von Prague. For those who don't know James on Prague, he channels uh, people from the other side. So he had a, uh, it was in a convention center, and there had to be 750 to 1,000 people. Chairs were, you know, side by side, all the way back. And I was sitting Mm -hmm. next to this woman, and she was so um, grief-stricken. And I said to her, you know, being to get a reading, and she says, yes, my sister died, and I'm hoping to hear from her. So she didn't get a reading. Um, it was halfway through. We were given a break. Everybody got up, you know, got out of their seats and went into the lobby or went to the restrooms or whatever. And we came back. She got back before I did. And when I got back, she looked at me with like extreme, I don't know if it was amazement, horror. I don't know what it was. And she moved her chair back, and there was a dead bird under the chair, and the bird was still warm. Now, there was no way, first of all, a bird could have gotten in there. I mean, it could have gotten in there, but why under her chair? And I said, what is the significance of the bird? She said, my sister said she would send me birds when she died. Wow. Now, (laughs) now. I mean, to sacrifice a live bird was a little extreme, but <laughs> wow, did it <laughs> did it um, prove the point? I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> poor little birdie. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, do you remember what you were going to say? Yes, yes, I was going to say the other kind of dream is what we call the visitation dream. And these are not symbolic. They're very clear. You know, the insurance is in the gray lockbox <laughs> in the closet. You know, so dad comes back to give a message. Nothing to interpret there. 
Right. Well, I, I got, I had a dream from my grandmother uh, many years after she passed. And the thing that I knew about this dream, the, the reason I knew it was real is because it was as vivid 10 years later as it was yeah. that night that I had it. it. They're very vivid. They're very different. But um, in the dream, I'm, I'm ascending the steps in the house, in her house. And she is standing up on the landing with some other woman. I didn't know who the woman was. And she looked like she was about 30 years old. She died when she was in her 70s. Um, she was glowing. Her face was radiant. And the other woman standing there, I was a little concerned because my mother was about to have surgery. And I thought maybe she had my mother with her. I didn't really know. But anyway, it was so impactful. And I asked my mother, uh, I told my mother about the dream. And she said, that's exactly where we found her. Right at that wow. spot. So. Wow. I knew, I knew that, you know, that that was a, a real dream because I never knew where they found her. She had a heart attack, but I didn't know where it was because I was young when it happened. Yeah, yeah. So these, these, these things absolutely do have, happen. Um, the, you know, you were talking about um, people hearing from their loved ones who have crossed over. And I think, I think the living's greatest fear is that their loved one is not in a good place or that they're not resting or, you know, and so these are truly gifts to the living, aren't they? Oh, yes. Yes. I truly believe that. Yeah. And, and often very reassuring again, in most cases. I'm just I'm looking through your book uh, Messages and Mediums Okay, so I just talked about mediums Yeah um, counseling. How did you oh, oh, I know what I wanted to talk about Ghosts and apparitions yes, okay. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 again, you know um, One of the things you, you have to say is um, Is that this too is, is a universal Um Every culture talks about ghosts. We talk about it in the history. Um, we're fascinated by them. It's a form of entertainment. It's been a form of entertainment for, you know, for years. Think of Shakespeare and Hamlet and Macbeth, you know, and, and all the ghosts that appear um, in, in ancient kinds of um, things. Um, you know, uh, my favorite story is, you know, we've always, we've always joked um, about the ghost of, of my grandmother, uh, in the basement, and you know, and we've had these experiences down there that that seem to denote a benign practice, and and you know, and I and I as I was writing this book, I kind of thought, well, what you know, what this, this story has lasted now for three generations, where we talk about the and and we still own the house, the family still owns the house. My my niece lives there now. She bought it from you know from my sister and I, uh, my brother, um, but. Um, you know, so it's still a family house, and we, you know, and everyone, we always joke about this ghost in 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 the basement. But you know, and I think it's interesting because I think it gives us a story of my grandmother, who was um, yeah. evidently a, a woman who was pushed into a marriage with a man she didn't know. Uh, you know, my grandfather at the beginning of the the you know 1900s and was was unhappy and actually uh, died by suicide. But it, it, it turns her into this um, kind of this benign presence who we see is, is very protective. So, you know, some of these stories really do fulfill a function. Um, and again, yeah. you know, um, 
one of the things that I that that one of the stances that I take in the book is is the stance of saying, you know, look at here's here's what we know. Here's the experiences that people have shared. Um, you have to make sense of them. You know, you have to come out of it. Uh, I'm not going to tell you uh, there are ghosts, there are not ghosts, but I can tell you um, that every culture has believed in them or recognized them or acknowledged them in one way or another, probably since uh, time goes on. That's so true. I mean, I've had personal experiences with them. Um, and yeah. I, I, own a, I own a business where there's a lot of people that come in and out of it, um, and um, and we've had some um, hauntings that have been left there, uh, very obvious ones that you could not deny because um, they were malevolent. And uh, this one particular one was malevolent, and okay. it did um, assault and scratch one of my employees. So wow. um, <laughs> that was a good one. I mean. After that, I was like, do we have a demon in here? And I didn't believe in it. And I asked one of my Catholic employees, I'm like, where do I get a priest? I thought I had a demon. But I got a paranormal team in, and we, and they were able to get it out, um, which was just very interesting. But so I've had so many experiences. What was their of it? I mean, what, what did they see it? Um, why was it there, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Did they give you any reason? Well, they often do um, because the the paranormal teams have devices where you can ask questions um, and either a light goes off for an answer or you see words coming across the screen, which is very, they're not full sentences, but you put them together. And um, so we've had a few of them, a few of these apparitions and one lady is not the the malevolent one but one lady in particular I had a very sensitive employee and she kept saying I'm really freaking out because I keep feeling somebody behind me so I brought in the team there was a woman who was in there who um, she had died she was actually murdered and oh. she was buried under this strip mall of the business oh I wow owned. And nobody ever knew. But she, at the time that she died or was murdered, she had a brother who was blind, and she was his caretaker. And so she was waiting around because she wanted to take care of him, even though he had probably crossed over many, many, because this was decades um, ago, many, many years ago. And um, so the paranormal team actually helped her to cross over, convinced her that her brother was on the other side, and um, so and I've had the team in a couple of different times. It, it blows my mind every time. But I'm, I'm just so fascinated. Other people are shaking in their boots, and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Ken, what do you want us to know um, about your book that, you know, maybe I didn't, I didn't well, cover? Anything? Um, as I said, I, I loved writing it. I hope people who get it will love reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's, um, it's, it's, you probably can order it from your local bookstore if it's not there. Um, um, but certainly I know, it, I, I know it's, it's available through Amazon at the very least. Um, I guess what I'd like your, people to know is, is I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinions. Um, should, uh, once, once you have a chance to look at the book, and, uh, and I'd love to hear your stories. And I'm going to 
put up a web page very shortly where people can share their own stories about this. Uh, it was fascinating, even in writing it. Um, my, you know, I have a 14-year-old um, gr- uh, granddaughter, and um, and she has a friend, a good friend, who's been friends since childhood. And this friend has a little 10-year-old little little brother. And when I was talking, um, you know, our families were together, and I was talking about the book. Um, this little 10-year-old piped up and said, "Tell him about my story, mom." And and even he had a fascinating story at 10. He um, he had never seen his maternal grandmother. Um, grandfather, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he he had died years before, and even before that, um, he had separated from uh, his daughter's um, daughter's mother. You know, I mean, his mother's. Let me let me get this straight. Um, this was his mother's father, but the mother didn't even see him for years because the parents had separated, and and he kind of drifted out of her life. Um, and then he told about a dream that he had, and it was a time when family was thinking about moving and relocating, and it was, you know, as those kinds of conversations are very tense. And he said, this man came to me, he said, and he could describe him perfectly, and, and it, was a, it was an accurate description of a man he had never even seen a picture of. Um, and he hmm. said, and I, he said what, what did he tell you? And he said, he told me that I should... I can keep keep an eye on my mom and be very nice to her. This was a tough time. <laughs> oh, wow! It was so sweet. Well, we the, the to, funny. We have to. I have to. Um, I have to end because we're running out of time. Uh, so thank I do. I do want to thank you so much for writing this book. When we die: extraordinary experiences at life's end. Kenneth J. Doka, Ph.D. So um, check it out if you. Uh, for my listeners, if you have interest in this. Topic. You definitely want to pick up a copy of this book. And uh, this has been a fascinating show, Ken. I really, uh, really appreciate you being my guest. Thank you. So thank you. Um, have a wonderful day. You too. And um, let me know if you write another one. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay? All right. So um, we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. And uh, Dr. Doka's website, again, is www.drkendoka.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com. And be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.